This episode contains sensitive material. Listener discretion advised. So I'm sat there and my head was just being bashed left, right, left, right, you know, just continual bashing. And, you know, at this point, by the way, I don't know, I've got no idea that I've been stabbed. There's no, there's no uh, evidence to me at the time that I've been stabbed at this point. So all of a sudden it just stopped. You know, they just, they just stopped and they walked away. I remember seeing their legs walking away because I was, I couldn't see up. Hello and welcome to Unexpected Turns with myself, Anne Dibbon and me, Julie Tattersall. A year ago, Olivia Pratt-Corbel's mother opened her front door. Moments later, Olivia was dead. Their lives changed forever. Years earlier, Darren Barden opened his front door. Luckily, he survived. Today, we hear his story. Good afternoon, Darren. It's lovely to have you here on our podcast with Julie and I. Good afternoon to both of you. And thank you very much for joining us. You um, have got a really, really interesting story, but I wanted to take you back if it's all right, early on as a newly married man, if you like. Well, uh, I mean, we go right back, actually, to leaving school, starting work. I met the love of my life, Wendy. Um, I was a bit of a boy in the day, you know, drinking a lot. And if I had my way, I'd probably still be doing that. But uh, (laughs) drinking (laughs) a lot. But no, so, yeah, I met Wendy. Wendy's mum and dad run my local pub. That's how we met. And then, uh, yeah, we, we we fell in love. I mean, it's the first time I'd ever been on an aeroplane was in 1987, and that's when we both went to Tenerife. But just prior to that, um, her dad, we, we wanted to get engaged. And Wendy's dad had said, listen, you go on holiday. If you can spend two weeks in a little room together, then when you come back, you can have my blessing. And that's what happened. So oh. she's regretted it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's that, a nice you story. Know, it was just a normal, yeah, it's, it's, you know, the, when I wrote a book, a couple of people have said it's, it's also a love story in there as well, you know, so, which is very true. And it's, it's but it's, it's a relatively normal life, you know, up until the, the point of, which we'll get to at some point, you know. So, yeah, it was, we, you know, we got married. Um, we, we moved out to New Zealand as well for a little while, just to try it. We went to New Zealand, Australia, done a little bit of travelling, um, just to see, you know, I'd always wanted to go to New Zealand to live and Wendy wanted to come and see whether it, you know, suit her or not. But I think without her parents, it was never going to happen, you know. So yeah. we'd done about 10 or 11 months um, away and then come back and decided to settle down. And that's when we needed to buy our own house. And that's where all the story sort of begins there. So you, the two of you came back and you bought your own house. Whereabouts yeah. was that? That's in Harlow in Essex. Right. Um, a friend, and then a friend of mine had one that he was um, he'd been renting for um, you know back in the day when it was I think I had the uh, DSS rents going on and he had about four or five people renting his place but he had got quite run down so it was it was up for a, a, at the time um, I think we paid about just under forty thousand pounds for it something like that you know four bedrooms with a garage and so on so, yeah wow. it was quite a while ago 
It was a real other time, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, at the time, it was probably worth about 50 or 1,000, you know, so us getting it around that sort of money, we was already ahead. Yeah. But it needed a lot of work doing. It was, you know, the whole place was, it was vile in there. You know, it, it was, we needed to strip everything right back to the, the bare bones of it, which was good for us because we, we could stay living at home with my mum and dad while we were working on the place. So I would go around there every opportunity. I would go around, for example, straight from work, do, do an hour or two, then back for dinner. And then at the weekends, you know, used to put all the time into it. So it was it was good, but it was always going to be a, a big project. I've done two of those yeah. things, actually. But <laughs> wow. mm-hmm. the idea was I was only going to do it once. <laughs> but you were working full time at the same time, weren't you? Yes, I was, yeah. 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 So what we then done, um, you know, we was we was like a lot of people in the day, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, so I then took on a second job and that second job was in the evening. So I'd work sort of half eight in the morning till half five during the day, Monday to Friday, but then of an evening and seven days a week, we used to do uh, deliver newspapers to shops. Mm-hmm. So sort of Sunday through to Thursday, I would start at midnight. And then Friday night, Saturday night, we would, uh, sorry, uh, I'd start about two in the morning, Monday to Friday. And then Friday night, Saturday night, we would start about midnight. So, and it was, it was just, you know, it earned me an extra hundred pound a week. And, you know, we needed it at the time, you know, it was, times were hard. We were trying to rebuild a house and and every, every pound counted. And you had a little boy as well, didn't you, at this time? That's right. Well, part of the reason for taking the house on, we've been trying for a baby for a couple well, for certainly for a little while and we're just no luck so we decided to take on this project and we literally took on the project and we said right we're going to take two years to rebuild this house and six weeks in my wife had actually was pregnant <laughs> so um that, that uh, two-year project became like an eight-month project um and literally we finished put the last bit of carpet down on the day he came home from hospital like, wow. so yeah, oh. it was it was a full on project, a full on project for that uh, short time. And you thought you weren't getting any sleep before that when you were doing the house and these two jobs. <laughs> but once you had a baby, you really didn't get any sleep. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was because obviously I was working the extra job as well. So as my son was getting into the period where he was teething, he was, um, you know, Wendy would have to take him to another room so I could sleep. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard, you know, but it's, it's, a lot of people have done a lot of things, you know, to, to survive when you're young and you've got a young family, you know, it wasn't going to be given to us. We had to work for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my son's got two different jobs that he does. You, you just did when you were young, didn't you? Or when we had more energy, we did, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Those are two jobs for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you had a young son and you were, work- yeah. and you were working these two jobs. Yep. So what happened? What happened then? So we, we was going through, a, like I say, a relatively normal life, and then on on Monday night, seventh uh, of October, uh, nineteen ninety. I don't know if you, it just froze a little bit there, so I don't know if you heard that at all. So um, yeah, but so on, on a Monday night at midnight, on the seventh of October, uh, back in nineteen ninety six. Uh, like I say, because I was used to starting work between twelve and two, we didn't have mobile phones in. It's hard to even imagine what life was like without a mobile phone. But, you know, if any of us were late for work, we would go to other person's house and we would knock and, you know, or phone the home number. So getting a knock on a Monday night, midnight, although it was quite rare, you didn't really think about it too much. 
you know, so it was a case of, I thought I'd overslept. So I just sort of jumped up in my pants and run downstairs to open the door. George was, um, he'd just turned one at the time. He was teething and Wendy was in the room next door trying to keep him quiet so I could sleep. And then we got this uh, knock on the door and from that moment on, you know, life changed completely. That was, you know, as, as the podcast indicates, unexpected turn. Yeah. So what happened? So you just opened the door. So, yeah, so... I've gone downstairs and when you, my stairs were those, um, like you went two ways. So it's just like a, a return on it. So you got to the bottom of the stairs. There's some little, a little arch glass in the top of the door. So I could see the street lights coming through from outside. Um, and like I say, it, it wasn't an issue to open the door. You, you, you weren't in a uh, fearful area, maybe, you know. So I just opened the door and there was two guys just stood there. And as I looked out, the guy, as I looked out to the right, he looked the opposite way past the other guy and just nodded. And it turns out there was there was four guys that came to do the job. One waited as a lookout and one waited as a, with a getaway car. But obviously I didn't know about that. That was eyewitness stuff. So, yeah, so as I looked at these two guys, the next thing I remember doing is putting my hands out in front of me, outstretched to sort of protect myself. I could just feel my head being bashed around, you know. So and I went from... I couldn't tell you any time scales on any of this. I've got no recollection of how long. No. Um, but I just felt my head being bashed. And I don't know whether I was knocked out or passed out, whichever it was. I was, according to my wife, she could hear screaming, but she didn't know who that was at the time. She didn't realise it was me. But then I was in a sort of like a fetal position on the floor. So I'm sat there and my head was just being bashed, left, right, left, right, you know, just continual bashing and you know at this point by the way i don't know i've got no idea that i've been stabbed there's no there's no uh, evidence to me at the time that i've been stabbed at this point so all of a sudden it just stopped you know they just they just stopped and they walked away i remember seeing their legs walking away because i was i couldn't see up but i was looking away and they just they just walked away and then from that moment on then you know, clearly it's a bit of a shock, you know, middle of the night, minding your own business. And then suddenly my fault was I'd just been beaten up. But I don't know how I shut the door, my front room, my front door, whether I shut it with my feet, my hands. I've got no way of knowing that. But I shut the front door around. I then turned and crawled through my, there's only a little hallway, probably about six foot long. Crawled through the hallway, through the living room. But in my sort of desire to get to the phone at the other end of the living room, um, the landline, as they call them now, um, you know, so I just I sort of used the settee to try and drag my way through the living room, got got to the phone. But by now, I sort of I had blood coming out of my head, my back, my chest, my legs, you know, so got to the phone, uh, dialed 999 and just screamed, you know, police, fire, ambulance, someone, you know, just anything. Um, the woman on the phone, the operator was fantastic. Um, but at this point now is when my wife upstairs realises that that's that's me. I've been injured, you know, I've been attacked. So because originally she thought that some madman had knocked on the door and was screaming at me. She didn't realise it was me that was doing the screams because obviously they would have been unrecognisable, you know. Yeah. Not something you would you know, normally do. So then I'm now sitting there basically on the phone to the, the police and, um, or the operator. And then Wendy comes down with... Uh, my son, who's one at a time, and just, you know, screams out, you know, I mean, she's, it's just blood everywhere, you know, but I mean, she's got no idea that as she's walking with my son, 
she she's walking through puddles of my blood. Like she didn't even notice that was happening. Gosh. I put the phone down to please. They said they were sending someone. Oh no, sorry, I didn't put the phone down. I actually, the op, I said to the operator, I need to phone my dad. And um, she said, you put the phone down, you've got to count to 10 and then dial the number you want, which I don't know how I did it. But I phoned, put the phone down, counted to 10, dialed my mum and dad's number. And bearing in mind, this is a Monday night, just after midnight. And my dad, my dad answered and I said, dad, can, can you come round? I've been, I've been beaten up. So my mum and dad then hopped in the car. They actually got there before the ambulance. Wow. But by the, by the time my mum and dad got there, the police were there already. And there was blue and white tape all, all around the house. And the, the policeman apparently said to my mum, you know, you can't come in. Right. And, uh, you know, you'll know uh, that, you know, no one's going to stop a mum when a, a son's in trouble, you know. So they come through, but they rescued me straight upstairs. So as you came into my front, my front door, the stairs were just on the right. Yeah. And if you look straight ahead, seven or eight yards, that's yeah. where I was at the other end of the living room. So my mum and dad came in, could see me basically bleeding to death, but rescued straight up the stairs to where Wendy and George were. Right. So obviously from that point on, the police were just asking Darren, you know, uh, every every time they asked me a question, they started with my name. And I, I don't know if I was dropping in and out of, you know, consciousness. So I don't think I was, but I don't know. And it was like, Darren, um, do you know? You wouldn't know, yeah. Exactly. It was Darren, who's driving a red car? Darren, what do you know about a red sports car? Darren this, Darren that. And it's like, you know, I've just got up in the middle of the night. I don't even know what day of the week it is there at this point. So... And then the ambulance guys turned up, um, and when they when they came in, the ambulance guys, one of them had trod on a piece of evidence, which turned out to be a, a broken bit of blade, and I'll explain that in a little while. So, so the police sort of backed up the ambulance people, then they let them in, and then they started to sort of dress my wounds and you know get me stable, and uh, then they put me on this metal frame, wrapped me in a blanket. I was so cold. Yeah, it's cold i've never experienced it since you know um you know it was a, it was a strange feeling that so so cold right to your bones cold you know i'm a, you know we know it's now shock but i didn't know at the time you know that it's, i was frozen absolutely frozen you know and at the time where the blood was dripping off my body and landing on my pants i thought i was sitting in sort of this depth of water you know six inches of water blood yeah but i wasn't it was just i was wet with the blood anyway the ambulance guys they they sort of felt wrapped me up in a blanket got me onto this metal chair this frame and as they started wheeling me towards my living room uh, my front door i then spotted what i'd been looking at at the bottom of my stairs which i thought was a small child's cricket bat it turned out it was an 18 inch meat cleaver that they'd put in a, a cardboard and cling film wrapper like a holster but they hadn't used it on me, thankfully enough. They hadn't used it on me. So as I then wheeling past what I now know is a knife, this was the point I realised I'd been stabbed. Mm. There was a few expletives, so the language was colourful to say the least. Once I realised, and I'm now, I realised I've been stabbed. I realised my wounds are stab wounds, you know. So, and then it was out to the out of the front door and towards the back of the ambulance, and and that's the point when for me that. I was gone, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was my last moment on this earth, you know, so it was, I looked up to the sky, it was a fantastically brilliant, deep, deep blue sky, 
and the stars, every single star, it was like I could see every single one of them. And I knew, I knew I was dead. That was, as far as I was concerned, that was me gone, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and they loaded me in the ambulance. Um, my wife come with me. Wendy then came into the ambulance. But that moment is, is poignant for many reasons. Number one, I thought I was dead or dying. But number two, for me, it's the moment I didn't die. You know, yeah. so it, it was the turning point of, uh, I mean, there was lots of turning points to come, but I didn't know. But at that moment, it was actually, no, I'm still, I'm still alive. You know, I could hear, I could hear the siren. I know there was no sirens. Apparently, I kept asking the policewoman, can you put the lights on and, and uh, the sirens? Um, because I'd never been in an ambulance before, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, apparently the ambulance driver shouted back and just said, Tell him we've gone for a red light that might keep him quiet. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. I was still, I was still sort of joking. I was of good spirits. A lot of this I've been told since, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then it was full on when we got to the hospital. It was, it was full on. You know, it was. We went. I'm assuming we went via the A and E route into the A and E department. Um, the next thing I sort of remember, I'm just in this room. With like a what I'd only describe as a big trough what cows would feed out of, and they had my head over this, and they were trying to shower my head and get rid of the blood so they could stitch my, my head up. Because I'd basically I've got seven serious stab wounds in my head, but each one of those wounds I was stabbed multiple times, so it's more than one stab wound in my head. So I I finished up with over 20 stab wounds, but the seven in my skull could have been three or four in each each of the wounds so i was probably stabbed somewhere in a range of about 40 times in total somewhere around there so but yeah so then i was it's amazing that you're still here and that you didn't as you said die yeah 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 that's quite a poignant moment really yeah so we're in we're in the hospital and you know i'm i'm, I'm being stitched up but they, they're injecting me these they've given me injections to where they were stitching to numb the area but it, it was so painful. This, whenever putting the injections in, it was really painful. Mm. And in the end, I just said, guys, stop, stop with the injections, just sew it up, you know. So they done the rest of my stitches without any injections because the stitches were less painful than the injection. Mm. So while I was there on this hospital bed being sewn up, the nurse said to me, um, you know, you can get compensation for this. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I don't even know what's happened, you know. So, uh, but then they put me in another room uh, I was with my dad. Um, my dad was sat there. I had an armed policeman with us as well. Um, he sat there uh, because at this point, the police knew a lot more than I did. So they knew that it was like a professional hit. Um, and they were obviously not sure if someone was going to come back and finish the job off, you know. So I was under armed guard in the hospital. I They moved me into this room at one point. Um, and then there was at one one particular point there was a prowler walking around the hospital it turns out it was just someone who's lost their way a little bit but at the, at the time the police suddenly are surrounded by doctors police they threw me onto this other bed wheeled me to a some isolation place where i couldn't be seen um and that's where i sort of spent the next few hours basically until the following afternoon so did it go through your mind what have i done to deserve this or did that come later really not at this point no no, not, not at this point at all. No, you, you know, the funny thing is, is so my mum and dad and, and my wife, Wendy, all, always want to know, they, they want to know who did it. Mm. They want to know because no one's ever been caught. No one's mm. ever been charged with this. It was mistaken identity. The police come back to me within about three or four days 
and CID this was, and they just said, look, basically, it's a bad day at the office. You know, there's they know from their sources that it's Darren Barden wasn't some sort of criminal or wasn't in operating those wells. So they knew straight away someone's made a mistake. And also for all their snitches or grasses or informants, whatever you want to call them, they'd all gone very quiet, like as in no one wanted to own up to it because obviously they got it wrong. Yeah. So for me, because I knew it, it wasn't for me, you know what mm. I mean? It's, you know, I just knew I hadn't done anything. I mean, the police investigated me, my wife, they wanted to know that we'd been in trouble with money and we had an affair, you know, all, all, so many different things they were looking into, but just kept drawing a blank. There was nothing there to to investigate. You know, we were just a normal young couple making our way in life, you know. So, yeah, just, and so for me, the question of what have I done wrong never entered my mind. And even now, I'm not bothered for knowing who did it because I know it wasn't personal. It wasn't for me. Mm. It's never, it's never sort of harboured on me. It's never been one of those things that I, I crave to know. You know, and I'm glad really because I think it would have held me back a lot more than what happened later on. You know, so I mean, it's, it sounds now it's even a lot easier to talk about. Obviously, we're talking twenty odd years on, mm. but the story really took a really, a, a, if you like, a turn for the worse. If you if you can think of it, anything being worse than what I've just told you about then it gets a lot worse. It gets a lot, lot worse than that because I then, about 13, 14 years after, I couldn't put a date on it, we don't know, but I was slipping into a bout of depression. And we now know this is called... By, and by this time, every, everybody thought, oh, you're fully recovered, everything's all all right, don't they? And they... Yes. I can see mm. that. I was actually in a pub. I was in a pub and one of my, one of my friends turned to me and said, it's about seven or eight years after the attack. And someone asked me a question about it, and I was talking to him, and his words were, oh, you don't still think about that, do you? <laughs> so, you know, so it's, it's you know, people, people just think differently, you know. So but 13 or 14 years after, I started to slip into a bout of depression. I didn't realise. We know now it's PTSD, um, but I didn't know this at the time. But that that depression was what led me down the road of on the verge of taking my own life, you know. That's... That for me, what I've been doing, I've been chasing acknowledgement, you know, for all of those years that I needed someone to come up to me and say, listen, what's happened's really bad and we're going to give you a leg up. I had to fight for everything. You know, I went through something called the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, which was horrendous. Mm. How they treated me was despicable. It was it was awful. I was the first ever case in this country to take the compensation, uh, the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board to a parliamentary ombudsman. Um, so I was the first ever case to take that. I was just so bitter. You know, I had no one to blame and I needed to blame someone. So I was taking it out on them. Their conduct was appalling. And they awarded me £2,000, um, which was pathetic. But um, <laughs> at this point, I'd lost about £8,000 in, in wages. You know, I wasn't earning a great deal, but at least I was earning something. You know, um, So we've been through this battle. And I'm not talking just a couple of weeks. This went on for over a year, you know. And I had to go to a hearing. It was you end up in a room that's like a courtroom. And you know, Wendy was allowed to come in with me, but they threatened her with if she spoke at any point, you know, she would be ejected from the room. You know, so she wasn't allowed to speak. She just had to be there. And I had three people down one side of the room, three people down another, and they sat me and Wendy on what can only describe as the plastic school chairs with a with a table yeah. there in the middle of this room. Really, really intimidating situation. And 
it turns out I owed a bit of tax money, about £300 tax money. Um, when Wendy submitted my books, so this happened in the October, Wendy submitted all my books uh, in the January and she missed off an invoice. We'd claimed the invoice. We hadn't hit it, it was a mistake, but it showed up that they, because they investigate everything. So even the tax office didn't know about this, but the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board want to do everything they can to prove that we're not going to give you any money. So they discovered this invoice um, where I hadn't paid, I think it's about, actually it might have been less now, I think it's about £160 in tax. I owed the tax man. And this guy, the Right Honourable Eric Stockdale, his name, he sat there with his glasses on and he said, uh, non-payment of tax is a criminal offence. He said, so think yourself lucky you got your £2,000. And I just sat there and I'm like, I'm, I'm actually now a criminal is what it felt like. And he, he looked down at his glasses, he went, looked over him and he said, is there anything else? I was furious. I, that sent me backwards. That sent me, you know, we're talking a couple of years after the attack and that sent me backwards. That was horrendous, that experience, you know. So, I mean, I've got all the paperwork and, you know, things that I've kept. But, yeah, so that experience was yeah. absolutely appalling, you know, that battle. But then I realised then we were on our own. There was no one there coming to help us. There was no one there with a handout, you know. Eventually, by the way, I did battle against compensation board and I've got seven and a half thousand in total um and that's that's yeah that's it's a, apparently uh, there was three grades there's a two thousand a seven and a half thousand and then a twenty thousand now I wasn't chasing the twenty thousand because of the money I was chasing the twenty thousand because of acknowledgement I wanted someone to say what's happened to you is really bad yeah it is. you know by getting the maximum at the time but what it was, the one they gave me at seven and a half thousand, basically that meant I'd be better after 28 weeks. There's an actual, <laughs> you know, on their forms, it actually says, well, Darren will recover in 28 weeks, you know. So, you know, I would, I'd like to have met him again 13 years after when I was having the depression and the PTSD, you know. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's loads of different factors in there. But at some point, you've got to get on with life, yeah. you know. And I had to, but what was happening then was I basically buried everything in the back of my head, you know, all, everything that had gone on. I just then got on with life, you know, started, got myself a job, you know, but I, then I, I kept changing jobs. I kept going from one job to another job to another job. And what was happening was when the job weren't going right, I used to blame everybody else, change jobs, everything would go smooth for a while. Then it started going wrong and then I'd blame everybody else and, and so on and so on. And it's... You know, I didn't realise that, you know, the problem was looking me in the mirror every morning, you know, <laughs> didn't know that was the problem, you know, but all the time I was chasing something to for someone to say, listen, you know, we know, we know it was really bad, you know, no one ever did, no one ever come to you, other than your nearest and dearest, you know. Did you never have, like, anybody from the police look after you, a counsellor or anything like that? Yep, yeah, so I had uh, victim support. Right. Um Victim support came in. They were brilliant. Uh, Ronnie Ayres, she's uh, nearly 90 now, I think, Ronnie Ayres. Uh, she's in her mid-80s. Wow. Uh, she was my, I don't know what you call them, sponsor, counsellor. I ended up going to work for victim support as well for a while as a charity, as a fundraiser and organiser. Uh, but, yeah, so they, they were excellent. You know, they were they were absolutely brilliant. Um, but ultimately, there's, there's only so far they can go. You know, where they were really helpful was... Um, my mortgage at the time, I couldn't afford. I had no work. Yeah. You know, just after the stabbing, I was due to start a new job and that didn't happen. So I had no money. 
went to the mortgage people and they were like, well, tough, basically. you got a mortgage, you got to pay it. I'm like, well, I'm trying, no, you know, I'm trying to get... So at the time, I was living at my mum and dad's with like, my son, who was just over like, 18 months. So we was we were sort of stuck. You know, I didn't want to move back into the house because we was too scared. You know, so it was, it was horrendous. But then, so I took my complaint about the building society that we had the mortgage with, I took that to victim support. And the actual building society in question, one of their top bosses was a patron of victim support. Wow. So 24, 48 hours later, I got a phone call, come and see the uh, the new the new building society manager and um, pay a pound a month until you get yourself back on your feet. They froze all the interest. All they wanted me to do is pay a pound a month. So wow. victim support were brilliant. You know that. That's really good to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That will be encouraging to lots of other people, I should think, to know that you can be treated fairly if you just find the right person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, my wife, she stood there with a one year old. I'm begging the, I'm going to call them a bank manager, I don't, you know, building society manager, bank manager. Mm. You know, I'm begging for some help. Mm. You know, and my wife's in tears, you know, in this meeting. And in the end, he looked up and said, Do you want to take the baby out? Like, like she's she's sobbing the boat like George won't have a problem just no no compassion whatsoever for the situation no compassion no and it was it was so there's loads of those things you go through you know when you you don't realize you know it's not just the injuries you know it's not just the mental health there's such a massive impact on Mm. on everything you know and a lot of people a lot of how you live your life you know and I think what happened was 13 or 14 years later when you know, I was just moving through life, you know, we'd had another child, Shannon, you know, we're, we're just doing all the normal things um, that I was going to get a big kick up the backside from PTSD and send me on this downward spiral into depression, you know, so, and and if, I'm, if I'd have known now, obviously, if I'd have known then what I know now, obviously, you would have spotted the signs, but, you know, you go back all those years, people, we're only, even now, we're only just getting men to speak out about mental health. Yeah. I'll come to that later on if I do, you know, but yeah, for me, so many people needed to learn so much from that. And I don't think people did, you know, I'd like to think they have now, a lot of them, you know, so professional organisations, you know, I went, I went to, they put me in front of a counsellor via the NHS and it was just pointless. It was just, it was irrelevant to whatever I was in there for. You know, the woman was lovely. She goes, nothing wrong. It's just a pointless exercise for me. It wasn't getting to the trouble. So she referred me on to a psychiatrist. I've done three sessions with this psychiatrist. And I just said, look, I don't even know why I'm here. You know, I really don't. And it's, I, I just stopped it all because I just felt it was pointless to me. You know, now, if I'd have taken on board what they'd have said at the time, then maybe things would have worked out different. Maybe I would have shed some of the grief that caused me to go through the uh, depression later on in life. You know, but I didn't. And they weren't, I don't think they were equipped to deal with my type of mental health, you know, this severe trauma that I've been through. Yeah. They were equipped then. Like I say, I think now people are a lot more equipped and we understand mental health a lot more than we've ever done in the past. And I think people understand more that these things are buried you know, and then it comes to the four years and years later, whereas, like you said, everybody was saying to you, your friends, surely yeah. you don't think about it now, but people understand differently now. Yeah, 